the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Perhaps not in person or firsthand, you have undoubtedly watched on the TV screen a judge in a courtroom declare order in the court. He says this because someone is speaking out of turn or there's too much commotion. In other words, it's declared by the court as he typically bangs the gavel, at least on television, when things are not proceeding in the orderly manner that they are supposed to with the dignity and respect of a courtroom. In the same way, our series entitled Order in the Church speaks to the same issue but in corporate worship rather than in a courtroom. When someone is speaking out of turn or there's too much commotion, we must be reminded of what our God, the great judge, desires, order in the church. We continue our series as we look at the end of chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. I invite you to turn there and look at verses 19, or excuse me, 29 through 33. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 29 through 33 is our passage this morning. Having seen how order is declared for those practicing the gift of tongues, we now move on to the gift of prophecy, understanding that this is a specific context because those spiritual gifts are no longer existent. Nevertheless, there's much to learn for us. 1 Corinthians 14, 29 through 33. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. This morning, four prescriptions for the proper use of the gift of prophecy. Last time we discussed prescriptions for the proper use of the gift of tongues. Today, prophecy. Four prescriptions for the proper use of the gift of prophecy. Again, the immediate context and application does not apply to us because the gift of prophecy is no longer, but we can still learn. The first prescription is the regulating guidelines. The regulating guidelines. Let me read for you again verses 29 through 30 and where we read a few rules just as we did with the gift of tongues. He says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. So as with tongues, we see several rules for the gift of prophecy. Keep in mind that we are still within the context of church or corporate worship, a gathering of the assembly of believers, whether this was a worship service As I mentioned last time, some believe this would have been the common meal where they would have taken communion afterwards. Either way, it is a time where there is corporate worship, where it is natural and fitting and orderly for one to speak at a time. The rules would be different if you were one-on-one, if you had someone over for dinner, if you were in some sort of casual setting. This, however, is a group worship setting. 
The rules for practicing tongues were seen in verses 27 through 28. Let me read those for you. It says, If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there's no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. So we see that the rules for prophecy are very similar, but of course without the need for an interpreter since the prophecy would be made in the language that was spoken amongst those people at that particular church. Like with the gift of tongues, you do see a limit on how many people can prophesy per meeting, and they must do so one by one. They must do so in turn. Unique to prophecy is the call for the rest of the church to pass judgment. Let's look at these rules in more detail. First, we see that the limit was two or three. That's pretty straightforward, same as with the gift of tongues. Then we see something that we didn't see with tongues, as I just mentioned. He says, and I quote, let the others pass judgment. This isn't judgment in the sense of sinfully judging. Oh, that guy's being rude. That guy's being sinful. What a horrible person. But it has to do with evaluating evaluating the veracity, the truthfulness, the sticking with the facts of what's been said. The phrase past judgment is one Greek verb in the, uh, in the original text, and it means to separate, to distinguish, to test, to judge. I like how the ESV and the NIV translate it to weigh or to weigh carefully the words of this prophet. And here's the principle. The principle is that others in the church were to make sure what the prophet was saying corresponds to what the Scriptures say. It is to separate or distinguish an actual prophecy from the individual's own thoughts and opinions. You say, well, isn't prophecy from God? Yes, but not everything that individual said was prophecy. Not everything he said was from God. Though with the gift of prophecy, they were human beings. They still had their own opinions. They still made casual conversation with friends and family. They joked around with their kids, whatever. It wasn't that every word that came out of their mouths was to be taken as the Word of God. Oh, wow, this, is, this, is, this hummus is the best I've ever had. <gasps> prophecy from the Lord. No. He's just making a casual statement. These were normal Christians with a particular spiritual gift. That being said, we also see that these individuals did not carry unquestionable divine authority. I know I've mentioned it before and I'll continue to mention it in this series. There are those that you can turn on the television right now. Well, not right now. There's no TV here. But you could go, on, go home, turn on a particular television channel that you're all familiar with, and there will be people there claiming to be prophets and claiming to have divine authority and that you should listen to everything they say, especially the part about sending your money. The church, Paul is saying, was not to accept everything they said simply because they had a spiritual gift, simply because they were indeed a prophet. Nor were they even to blindly accept that which he claimed was spoken under the influence of the Holy Spirit. He could be lying. He could be deceiving. After all, we've seen 
much sin in this church, especially in regard to spiritual gifts over the past couple of months. Self-serving, seeking their own glory. It is a small step from seeking your own glory within the church to stretching the truth or flat-out lying. In the same vein, this is a warning for prophets. Prophets were not to view themselves as infallible and outside the bounds of accountability from the rest of the church body in light of what they knew about Scripture. Rather, in order to glorify God as well as to protect themselves and the prophet from doctrinal error, they were to judge what was said. Is this truly from God? Is this truly biblical? How would they do that? The same way you would judge anything that I say or what your small group leader says or anyone claiming to speak biblical truth or even what you say in casual conversation. How do you do that? You ask questions. Questions like, does it correspond with what the Bible teaches about Jesus and the preaching of Christ? You ask questions like, does it correspond with Scripture? That is properly interpreted through the lens of the gospel. Does it encourage biblical living and God-centered worship? Does it align with biblical self-sacrificial love aimed at the glory of God, the edification of the saints, and the salvation of the lost? If not, especially if claimed to be a prophecy from God, it is not a prophecy from God. If it encourages hate, if it encourages selfishness, if it encourages the worship of another God, if it encourages anything but complete devotion to the one true God, it is not a prophecy from God. God would not say that. He would not contradict Himself and His revealed Word. We, like the Corinthians, should judge what is said in the name of God, albeit unique to the Christians in that they had actual prophets in their midst. And so we've seen these two rules, a numerical limit and the discerning by the congregation. The third rule is in the next verse, in verse 30. As with tongues, only one was to speak at a time. One was to give a word of prophecy at a time. If someone else is given a revelation from God as in the midst of one individual delivering his prophecy, well, the person who is currently prophesying is to finish up, stop, and then sit down so that the next person can give his word from God. At first glance, this seems strange for the simple fact that interruptions like the ones Paul seems to be allowing here go against order in the church. But you must remember one important truth. A revelation that results in a prophecy comes from the Holy Spirit. It comes from God. And the idea is that he will not give several people prophecy at the same time because, as mentioned last time and as we will see in a moment, God is a God of order. He is not promoting chaos. It's important to note that the whole phrase, a revelation is made, again, is one verb in the Greek and it's passive. What that means, if you don't remember your grammar, is that it's done to someone by someone else. Namely, God the Holy Spirit is the one revealing. 
So this all revolves around God's sovereignty rather than man's wishes. And he is a God of order. So he will allow those prophecies and deliver those revelations in an orderly manner. Let's look into the details here. The mention of being seated is similar to what you see in this room. The speaker is standing and the listeners are seated. This is borrowed from what was the practice in the synagogues. The standing speaker should recognize that the Holy Spirit has revealed something to someone else. And when that person stands indicating that they have a prophecy, he is to sit. And the fact that the first one is called to be silent simply means that he yields to the next speaker. The guideline has the same constraints as we saw for tongues and for the same reason. To maintain order and to avoid chaos and confusion within the church. And there are a few lessons we in the modern church can learn from this. Remember what Paul is ultimately addressing here. The arrogant misuse of spiritual gifts for one's own ego and one's own glory. And when you look at what Paul is instructing, you see a direct attack against the self-centeredness and pride within that church. You see, giving others the floor when you are already speaking, when all eyes are on you, all ears are tuned to your words, that's very hard for the proud. It's near impossible for the arrogant. You could argue that the proud actually have no self-control when it comes to such things. They will often say, based on whatever, their own pride or their feelings, I have to stay standing. I have to say this. You shouldn't say that. I have to. I need to do something about that. We get confused. We forget about the true definition of the word need. My children do this all the time. I need to finish that game. No, you do not. You need to eat, you need to sleep, you need to obey. You don't need to finish a game. They say, I need to do that. You see, it's hard for the proud if you're focused on yourself. They speak as if it's someone out, some sort of outside force that makes them have to appease their pride or their anger. Perhaps that's more common. That's more uh, along the lines of your experience when you're angry I have to say something to him. I need to do something about this. No, you don't. You need to calm down and repent. Granted, it may be harder at some times than others. The reality is that they don't have to do it. They don't need to do it. They want to do it. When all of this plays out in the Christian life and the church, you see a recipe for disaster as others are not preferred and God is not submitted to. Many of you perhaps have seen own relationships in your life destroyed because someone, perhaps you being that someone, had to say something, needed to do something about it. Imagine this happening in the church. And remember, we are talking about people who have a revelation from God Himself. Sit down. Let God speak through the next person. And if self-control and deference are called for in this scenario, how much more for your critical questioning or complaint in church or small group? 
It's not that we want to dictatorially suppress all thought or suggestion, far from it. But if we are honest with ourselves, we know when we are just speaking up to challenge or to criticize or make ourselves heard simply for the sake of making ourselves heard rather than for something productive and encouraging for others. You know when you're doing that. You know when you're trying to be helpful either to others or even to yourself to further understand the Scriptures or you're just taking a jab, a swipe. We need to be careful. We need to be humble. We need to be loving. And so those are the guidelines. Not specific to our situation, but again, many principles that we can apply and learn from. Now let's look at our second prescription for the proper use of the gift of prophecy, the repeated goal. Verse 31 For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. Repeated goal. We've seen this over and over again. It is the underlying theme of what he has been talking about. Focus on others. So here Paul explains the reason for the last rule. It is so they are speaking one by one rather than over and on top of each other at the same time. Why? For the same reason we want order in the church so that everyone can learn and everyone can be exhorted. And when it comes to prophecy, if given the chance, you would undoubtedly want to hear all of it. It's from God. You want to hear all of it, learn from all of it, exegete it, memorize it. You can't do that if you're hearing multiple people at the same time. Let me illustrate this. Go back to when you were in college. I don't think you would think this scenario was fair. The professor comes in. He's been warning you for weeks. He said, today's the day. This is the lecture. Today's lecture is what you will be tested on, and your grade in the class will be determined by that one test. I'm glad you all showed up. So pay attention. It's just one lecture in the semester. Everything is based on what you learned today and your ability to regurgitate it on the exam. And as you think he's about to begin, he opens the door and invites two other professors to come in and all three of them start lecturing at the same time. At best, you would be able to focus on one-third of what is being said if you're able to tune out the other two and focus on that one-third. And even if you were to memorize what that one professor said you would still flunk the class because 33% is an F. You wouldn't learn. And that's what Paul is saying. Learning must be done systematically and orderly, perhaps more to the point, teaching must be done systematically and orderly because ultimately the goal, as he says here, is the exhortation of the body. Exhort means to encourage or comfort. And this is different than the overarching theme of edification or building up, but it's part of it. It's the same general idea. Learning and comforting is all part of building up the Christian. The ultimate repeated goal is the growth of the believer, all believers within the church. That's the repeated goal. Number three, the third prescription is the restraining guard He says in verse 32, And the spirits of prophets are subject 
to prophets. This is not saying that prophets are subject to each other, but that their gift is subject to themselves, their own control. Spirits of prophets refers to the divine influence of the Holy Spirit which led to the prophecy. It's the the leading of the Holy Spirit that drew them to the prophecy. The manifestation of the Holy Spirit in exercising this spiritual gift. So, this ability, as we see here, is under the subjection and under the control of the one with the spiritual gift. They speak when they want to speak. They are in control of themselves. On either end of the spectrum, sinfully, as is happening in Corinth, if you are given a prophecy, you want to speak forward because everyone is then praising you. On the opposite side of the spectrum of humility and desiring to serve the Lord, if you are given a prophecy, you want to speak it because it exhorts and teaches the congregation. So you still have that desire that can be suppressed. And what I'm saying is you probably wouldn't want to, but you can. Just as as we saw with the gift of tongues, you can stop it. This reinforces the principle that those with the gift of prophecy had control over their gift. Paul pointing out this out makes sense when we remind ourselves of the broader lesson of order in the church. The last time I mentioned that this counters the current practice of many within the charismatic movement. When it comes to tongues, if you visit their churches, they speak at the same time over one another multiple people, there's a lack of order, there's a lack of understanding, there's an absence of an interpreter, not not just at the moment or for that individual, but the absence of this practice of interpretation entirely in the charismatic movement. And the result is that there's no result. There's no edification, there's no learning, there's no exhortation. And sometimes adding to the chaos In these churches is the speaking forth of a supposed word of revelation, blurting it out whenever they feel as they claim they are being possessed by the Holy Spirit. This is a really good lesson, by the way, on how easy it is to twist the Scriptures, but with good intentions, while often confusing other believers or at least those familiar with the Bible. They're using biblical terms and referencing biblical realities Tongues, the Holy Spirit, revelation. But they're not practicing them properly nor acknowledging the temporal nature of those gifts. But if you are all emotion about God, think about it. Who wouldn't want this? Who wouldn't want to be so used and blessed by God Himself that He overtakes you, possesses you, so that you no longer have any control. If you have the wrong theology, why wouldn't you want to be so esteemed by God that He would use you as His holy vessel in this way, uncontrollably blurting out whatever it is you're blurting out? And you can see the draw if you are more emotion than truth. I've been getting this advertisement on my Facebook feed for these Christian bracelets. 
they have a, you can flip it over. You can wear it either way. And it has a Bible reference on one side and then a, a, an encouraging, motivating phrase on another. And there's one bracelet that says Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who, through Christ who strengthens me. And you know what the motivation is? There's nothing I can't do. Sounds good. You've got a Bible reference completely taken out of context. Not true biblically, not true theologically, not true scientifically. <laughs> I want to fly like Superman. There's nothing I can't do. Philippians 4.13. In case you're wondering, by the way, the context is Paul saying that he has lived in poverty and he has lived as a wealthy individual. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In other words, he can live in all circumstances. This is not, you know who likes to quote this? Uh, professional athletes who are Christians. They like to quote that. After they win, of course. Right? I mean, why don't you have, how long have you been playing? 25 years? Why don't you have 25 championship rings if what you're saying and how you're using this verse is true? But again, good intentions. They want to be bold on ESPN in front of the whole world. They have good intentions. They want to proclaim their faith and their trust in God to the whole world on national, if not international, television. But it's wrong theology. It's bad theology. And we see this also, especially in our day, regarding these spiritual gifts. We need to be careful of our emotions they must be guided and guarded by the truth. To be fair, to be totally fair, those within our more conservative circles tend to be unbalanced on the side of truth in the sense of knowing, studying, and even arguing over loving and doing. We must have both. Back to our text. Those with the gift of prophecy were in total control. This is the restraining guard. It is part of the spiritual gift, which allows them to focus on the repeated goal within, as we started, the regulating guidelines. Now for a fourth and final prescription for the proper use of the gift of prophecy, the reflective godliness. Look at verse 33a. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. This phrase ties it all together. This phrase is the key to the whole chapter. Everything that Paul has instructed regarding spiritual gifts within the context of maintaining order in the church is for one simple reason. Reflect your God. Reflect your God. This is the very definition of godliness. It's a definition of Christ-likeness. It is the practical definition of Christian what God is in character is what the church should be in character. Specifically here, not confusion, but peace. So on the one hand, Paul says you can have confusion. It literally means disorder, disturbance, confusion. And this is what is happening in Corinth. This is what happens when people lack self-control self 
in the use of their spiritual gifts. This is what happens when people are focused on themselves and not on others. This is what happens when you do not reflect the character of God, especially in the use of your God-given gifts. So, if God is not a God of confusion, what is He? Here in the verse, a God of peace. This is the opposite of disorder and confusion. We know that in His nature and actions, God acts faithfully, orderly, coherently, and without contradiction of His character and revealed will. We know that He desires and sent His Son to die for harmony rather than strife. Romans 15, 2 Thessalonians 3, refer to Him as a God of peace or the Lord of peace. As such, where the Holy Spirit rules and is obeyed, there is peace. And because of this truth about God, as His children, we should emulate this in our worship. I mean, what better way to worship and exalt the name of God than by reflecting who He is? After all, have you not said yourself that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery? It's not just a matter of trying to be like Him positively, but negatively. If we don't have order in our churches, it doesn't honor Him because it doesn't conform to His will and His character. It doesn't allow for proper communication within the church, which leads to edification and learning and exhortation. Not to mention the misrepresentation of who God is to the world around us. You know what one of my favorite words is? It's misused or, or too often used sometimes, but when used property, properly, the word dignity. Dignity. There's power in that word. And we have the privilege and the ability to live out our faith in a dignified manner. What we can learn from the Corinthians is that arrogance and selfishness is not dignified. It may feel dignified. Society may say you are dignified, but there's no dignity in that. Read the Proverbs. It says over and over again, this is better than that. Things like godliness and wisdom and faithfulness are better than riches better to be poor and have godliness than to have riches and wealth and fame and fortune. There's power there. Selfishness, arrogance, it doesn't reflect God's character and it definitely does not reflect His will for your life and what He saved you to be. And when you are selfish, when you seek your own in the church, Chaos is the result. If you seek selfishness and seek your own in your own life, chaos is the result. And probably not in our church. We wouldn't let it get to that point, but in your own life, in your own thinking, in your own relationships, even on on a small scale. Think about how it confused, how it miffed others when you were cheap or you tried to make silly debate. What are you doing? Why are you doing that? Expand that to a larger argument and more significant financial responsibilities. And things get confused all around you. 
is getting harder and harder as the depravity of the world becomes more evident, more acceptable, more legal, as we saw last week. Our culture pushes you to seek your own. That is what is good. That is what is right. Be concerned with you, me, myself, and I. Be nice about it, but be driven by self. Be concerned with what you want, how you feel. We need to respect that no matter what the repercussions are, no matter what you choose to do. If you feel it, do it. And if people don't like it, well, you need help because that's a, that's a mental health day you need to take. Do what you want. It's okay. It's good. Be concerned with your own wallet. And eventually, this bleeds into the church. I'll give you a side note. This is just my own thing, okay? And I don't mean to step on anyone's toes, and I know this is, this is everyone's in a different situation. This is just me, okay? It's not the Bible. This is... First Fleshalonians, okay? We have a whole generation growing up that is all about me because that's what the culture teaches and encourages. There is a distinct difference when I meet with older men and I meet with younger men. I think there is a reason that when I meet with older men, they're early or on time and fight for the bill. Younger men stray in whenever they want and want to split the check. And I understand that it's not a biblical issue, but it's always confused me. Christians, is this what we are now? That we are so concerned about our own wallets our own time, what we want to do that we're counting, we're calculating, we're counting every cent, every dime, rather than just saying, brother, I'm going to encourage you today. See, it seems like a small thing, but it bleeds into bigger things. Oh, man, I'm, you know, you hear people who are afraid and and it's like, oh, I can't get a hold of a mask. Do you have any? No, as they're falling out of your box, right? We, we get scared, we get selfish, and you can see all of this. I'm not saying that we should just let go and let God. We need to be discerning, we need to be responsible, we want to be good stewards. But we've got to be careful of the selfish attitude, the me-centered attitude, and even the little things in life. Because no one walked into a church and all of a sudden said, wow, I'm going to seek self-glory. Super humble, sacrificial, loving person, never thought about himself, and all of a sudden he's been given a, a spiritual gift and so he just wants all eyes on him. You don't go to zero to 60 in 0.1 seconds. It starts with the little things and it develops. It starts with you sitting in your bedroom or in your office and looking around and saying, what am I selfish about? What am I greedy about? 
What do I see as just mine rather than God's? Yes, it's hard for me to say, but I accept the reality that I am taking care of children that are mine, but they're ultimately God's. You want to learn how you can not love your children and your family more than God? To idolize your children? Understand that they're ultimately not yours. They're yours. They look like you. You or you went through the adoption process. They're your children. You understand what I'm saying? But they're God's. Those were your grades. You pulled the all-nighters, but God helped you do that. God did that. You earned that money. You fought for that bonus. You had that difficult conversation with your manager and your boss and your coworkers, and you got that raise, but that money is God's. And you are you. You have been given abilities and talents that fold and mold and meld into what we call a spiritual gift. And it is your gift. You can use it when you want. But it's God's. And it is to use, be used by God for God's people in God's timing, in God's plan, because of God's salvation, as a result of God's sacrifice, God's justification, undoubtedly you see the pattern here. It's all God's. And we are to reflect Him in order in the church, yes, but you don't just maintain order and God-centered focus in corporate worship and live selfishly every other day of the week. It's not going to happen. If that's how you live, it's not happening in your worship, in your quiet times. It's not just the show here. This is not just the show. This is a reflection of the rest of your week. This is a reflection of who God is. This is a reflection of what you should be doing the rest of the week. My friends, this should not be, this morning should not have been the first time you've touched your Bible since last Sunday. What I just read, what Kyle read earlier, should not have been the first scripture you have heard this week. Cannot live that way. We need to focus on the Lord, focus on worship. Let's be people who reflect the selflessness and thus the order and peace of God. It starts with humility and self-sacrifice. Four prescriptions for the proper use of the gift of prophecy, the regulating guidelines, the repeated goal, the restraining guard, and the reflective godliness. Order in the court. Why? Because in a court of law, the most important person is not the juror, it's not the attorney, it's not the witnesses, nor the plaintiff or defendant, not the audience, not the bailiff. It is the judge. 
And when the judge says order in the court, you practice order in the court. In the courtroom of church, God is the most important person, not the pastor, not the ushers, not the babies, not the congregation. And when he says order in the church, we'd better listen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you so much for your character, your order, your love, your selflessness. Thank you for the privilege that we have to worship you in reflection of that, that we would, or we could be godly people practicing order not only on a Sunday morning but in our own lives. I pray, Father, that we would be a people who desire to be sacrificial, that we would understand everything is yours, that we would cultivate order and peace and godliness day to day and not just outwardly, corporately on Sunday mornings. Thank you for the example, even the negative example of the Corinthians that we can learn from. Thank you that your word is timeless and there is truth directly and elsewhere in Scripture that we can learn from. I pray that you would continue to use us to this end. In Jesus' name, amen. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.